This is the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Fur Neiman. If you're looking to generate wealth and passive income in the lucrative world of mobile home parks, you're in the right place. You'll discover solutions to the common legal and operational pitfalls and how to optimize parks to maximize income. Your host is in the trenches. He's a real estate attorney, financial analyst, and mobile home park investor and operator. Now, let's turn it over to Fern Neiman. Welcome back, Mobile Home Park Nation. Ferd Neiman here again today with another episode of the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast. Excited to have you uh, listen to one of my guests today. Another good guest for you. Got a lot of experience. We're going to cover a lot of the deal sourcing and DD and acquisition process through closing. He's got a lot of expertise and lessons learned. So please help me welcome my guest, Jason Janda. Jason, thanks for coming on, man. Thank you, Ferd. Thanks for having me. Big fan. Hey, well, likewise. Well, you're another recovering attorney like myself. So uh, I guess I still practice probably more than you, but uh, tell us a little more about your background and how you got into MH. Definitely. Like you said, uh, background is is as an attorney, worked in-house at a couple of private equity shops, real estate private equity shops. And then from there worked uh, in the law firm setting and really fell into MH by doing borrower's opinions for Fannie and Freddie. And so in the process of seeing uh, some of the financials and the spread that existed at the time, this is back 2012, 2013, the spread of between what Fannie and Freddie would lend versus what prevailing cap rates were, you know, the space looked very attractive at the time. Don't you wish you could reward, uh, rewind some of that and go find some deals with a 500 bip spread or 800 bips or even, even beyond. So not as easy today as it was then. Oh my gosh. There's, I mean, the default even back then for very quality stuff was 250 to 300 basis points. And I go through this old dead deal file just to give myself a laugh and, you know, mm-hmm. throw a dart. Every single one of them would have been a good deal. Right. I know it's, I remember when I first started, I was like, if it's not a 12 cap, I'm not even going to look at it on current income. And it's like, man, I, I passed up on one deal in particular that, uh, you know, it had a bunch of vacancy, but it was in a good market. I'm like, I'm not going to pay. I'm not going to pay this kind of cap rate. And somebody else paid a five cap. And I was like, I thought they were crazy. But then I'm like, then I watched I'm like, yeah, but the cap rate doesn't really matter if you're going to do a bunch of infill. It's not today's cap, cap rate value. It's what's the what's the end value and what's the reasonable probability to get there from assumptions and infill and, you know, future rents, future expenses, future cap rates. So live and learn. Um, but tell us some, tell us some examples, give me some stories and give me some tips on um, what you've been able to learn over the years. So, you know, we, we typically source through three ways. We'll either go direct, which we is always the preferred route, right? Um, that usually gets us, better pricing, get better relationship directly with the seller, better understanding of what the seller's needs are and how we can tailor the transaction, right? End of the day, we just want to close. And so if that is the seller carrying back paper, because that's what they want, if it's hitting a certain number that we can't justify yet, but helping them restructure some of their leases um, to generate additional revenue, we can help them do that. So, you know, that's the preferred route, but as you know, there's more and more people touching more and more owners nowadays. And so a lot of times we're stuck uh, going either the wholesaler route or the broker route. And, you know, each comes with its own benefits and challenges, right? With a wholesaler or a broker, you know, the seller's real, right? Rather than just, <laughs> yeah. rather than just you know, asking you to spend a lot of time and hoping that, you know, one day they'll sell to you. 
So, you know, in, in each of those, what we've come to do more and more, especially now is a lot of times we would go directly to PSA. Hey, here's a PSA. You want a contract? We're real. Sign it. Let's go. But nowadays, you know, just to get the, the whole ball rolling and move faster, we do a lot of LOIs where, you know, they're non-binding, but it's got, you know, the meat and potatoes of everything that we're going to agree to. It's a page. And if everyone agrees on that, at least we know we've got a live one and we can proceed with a PSA shortly thereafter. Yeah. Interesting approach. Yeah. I mean, I, I hear you on LOI first. I've, I've kind of done a kind of morph the two and I, I go with an LOI first, but it's a pretty robust LOI, two or three pages, and it's got a binding provision, which is unique. And I've been able to have some success with that. Um, and I give it away to people all the time. I'm happy to send you a copy as well. Mm-hmm. And where it's, where it's helped me is I've had sellers that won't sign the long form PSA because they just get heartburn. They're like, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not paying for a lawyer and I'm not going to sign a document that requires a lawyer, but the LOI they'll, they're, they're happier to sign. And I've had a couple of people push back and say, well, why is this binding? I don't the LOIs are supposed to be non-binding. And I said, well, I'm spending a lot of time and energy on this and I'm going to spend more time and energy and money. If we go to the next step, I'm a man of my word. Here's the terms. Are you a man of your word? If so, why would you not sign a binding? I don't want to go spend for all I know, as soon as I walk out of here, somebody else can offer you a dollar more or a day faster. And you're going to, you know, take it. And and, I've, and we, we have terms here. We have an agreement. We have some camaraderie together. I thought, I thought we were, I thought we were there, man. And then and that, I don't like, I say guilt people, but I convinced them to sign Definitely. at that the LOI at that time. And then I've, I've kind of got them in the mode of, this is, this is real. This is happening. And then we go to PSA and then, you know, it also helps me push a little harder, fight a little harder on the PSA. Cause I'm like, Whoa, Whoa, Whoa. Cause sometimes they'll do the LOI on their own. And then they'll be like, I don't need a lawyer. But then you give them the contract. Like, okay, I guess I need a lawyer. Well, the lawyer wants to rip apart the contract. I'm like, Hey man, those terms were already agreed to by your party under the LOI. Like, you know, for example, I love to have these, I'm sure you too love to have the inspection period start if and when and after I receive the last of the title commitment, the survey, and the seller deliverables. I don't put all those seller deliverables in the LOI because it's going to scare people. I put them in the contract, but I've also got the title commitment survey. Well, the seller's attorney always wants to have the time inspection period start when at the effective date. Yeah. You know, then you know, and by the way, I can sometimes provide a, a lower price with a fast DD. So I've said 20 day DD, 20 day close. Well, I know I'm not going to really be able to close that fast if I'm getting a bank loan, but I also know the title commitments are three weeks backed out right now. So that buys me three weeks of time. And it's not my fault, you know, that title commitments are slow, but I also know that the seller is going to have a hard time producing all these documents in one day, even, even brokered transactions. Some of the brokers, most of the brokers do a good job. They get all the stuff in the Dropbox deal room on the front end but they can't get the title commitment with me as the buyer on there because until we have a contract until the earnest money and is in and the escrow opens up. Anyway, I like the, but I like the LOI. Have you had, have you had pushback? Um, so you, you're doing the LOI more now because you've had pushback going straight to contract. Typically. Yes. And, but our LOI process is almost identical to yours. Well, a lot of what you're saying is the same thing, right? So our typical person we're dealing with, they're interested in just a couple of things. One, how much EMD are they getting? Two, what's the timeline for DD? And three, when is this closing, right? So much like you, we require all the seller deliverables first. We don't require the title commitment before the timeline starts running. Because our 
our idea is once we get the seller deliverables, we've got a 70, 75% sure surety that, Hey, we're going to proceed with this, right? Cause we've already driven it. We've already checked it out. Someone's put eyes on it. Yeah. Um, you know, if we're not close, we've even done it where, you know, I'll throw a Facebook marketplace or Craigslist ad, Venmo someone 50, 75 bucks to drive it, shoot us a couple iPhone videos and then text those back to us. Right. Yeah. So, I've, I've done that. I've, I've even found people, it's hard to find somebody who's good at it, but it'll do a drone video. Of, oh, that's I mean, amazing. It was like a hundred bucks. So this is pretty cool. You know, I don't know. Yeah. I have a drone. I bought the cheapest drone possible. It was like $49 and it's horribly difficult to fly. This is just because blowing around in the wind. I'm like, I'm not, I don't want to spend a thousand bucks on one because for fear of running it into the office building, but um, yeah. anyway, yeah. it's, so, pretty high, it's a pretty high quality video actually. Oh yeah. And it works. And especially once you own it, if you can do a drone video, anything to like bring further traffic to your property, right. Whether you're posting that drone video on YouTube or on your website or what have you, but back to the LOI, you know, so we'll provide a decent EMD, but then really it's like yourself, we know the timeline of some of this stuff. So even if we're going to get bank financing, we might say, Hey, there's no financing contingency, right? This is a cash deal. But we know it's going to take about 45 days. I know I've got a couple of banks, not the best terms, but I can get stuff closed in 21 to 30 days if need be uh, on, you know, slightly worse terms. But if that gets me the better price, then, you know, that's what we're going to do to execute. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I I, I think that that's a huge lift in your offer in the seller's eyes if you say no financing contingency. Um, and, And I have, you know, I do that. I do that all the time. I'm like, I'll tell them I'm going to get a loan, but it also, it gives them confidence. I'll say, I'm going to get a loan, but I'm not worried about me getting approval. So I don't even need the contingency. I know I can get approved. You want to talk to my bankers? And then they're like, okay, if this guy's going to risk his EMD without having that contingency, because the last guy and the guy before that, and the guy, they couldn't get a loan. And kind of like you, I've already driven the park. I already know the market. So I'm not fishing in ponds where I'm worried about getting a loan. I'm fishing in ponds where I'm like, this is in the footprint of, of my bank or a number of banks or a loan originator. You know, so just, um, I think that's, a, that goes a long way with the seller for sure. Definitely. And that uh, coupled with, you know, if we've got a slightly longer period, just releasing the EMD a little bit sooner, right? If we get all the seller, seller deliverables, you know, there's what's, no excuse for taking more than five or six days to get through. That what's stuff. your view? What's your view on non-refundable earnest money? Do you, do you let it go firm somewhere mid process or even do you do up front sometimes in order to win the deal? Cause obviously that, that talks, that speaks loudly. It's just, obviously it's, it's, it's painful for a buyer. So you gotta be real comfortable with the amount and the timing and the, you know, the, the other particulars. Again, this to me goes back to, are you dealing with the seller directly or are you going through a broker, right? If you can figure out what the seller's needs are or what their touch points, this seller might've been trying to sell that property three times and got burned twice, right? Mm -hmm. So now they might say, okay, hey, I don't want someone just kicking the can around, right? And so then we'll say, okay, hey, you know, we'll put up earnest money and we'll just keep refilling it every 30 days and we'll let you take it out non-refundable, disperse to you in 30 days, Oh, wow. But we might need 60 days. We might need 90 days. Right. But at the meantime, you're not just wasting your time. You're going to be getting money. And we're going to be, you know, the hold of term pot committed, right? We're, we've got some in it. And so we're going to want to see this thing go through. Yeah. Getting the earnest money released to the seller is super motivating for the seller. So, yeah, you, you know, we had it. I've had it happen a couple of times. And on one client deal, it was a big number. It was like 250,000 and the client was going to let it be released. And I was like, okay, we need to make sure the contract has default and breach provisions that we're real comfortable with. So, cause in, in that case, the seller 
Um, we made them represent and warrant that they were unaware of any known sewer, water, other problems. And then during our DD, we found out it was massive sewer problems. And, and we found out they knew because they'd already got bids for a million dollars for the sewer repair. So luckily we had that in the contract. So we, the, the, the quote, non-refundable 250,000, in this case, it was still an escrow at the title company. So it wasn't released, but that non-refundable 250 became refundable because of the breach. And then there were also some other damages provisions because of the breach. But I was dealing with one last week, actually, on a client that we didn't do the PSA. We were doing the zoning work after the PSA, and it was 25,000 non-refundable, and there was no seller breach, no damage provisions. And and guess what? The seller breached. And now it's a, pro- now it's a problem, right? Yeah. So, um you gotta be, you gotta be tread lightly for, you know, for you're a lawyer, you you take care of yourself. But I think a lot of these guys out there, you know, playing street lawyer and sometimes it's easy, but sometimes it's not. And it's when you're talking about 25 K or more, that's, this is a big number, you know, that they let get disappear, you know, it was thousand bucks. Okay. Who cares? Not even worth fighting over at that point, but uh, big number, then you get to button it up better. Definitely. And much as you said, oh, you know, we do the same thing. If there's any systems issues, you know, that's one of the reps and warranties. But, you know, I've more than a handful of times I've had people not tell the truth on that. Right. I'm sure you've come across it, too. Yeah. But it's one of those things where, you know, you got to get in there. You got to camera the pipes. You know, we have a spreadsheet we send to every electrician, regardless of where they're located, of, hey, this is our spreadsheet. Fill this out for us. Right. Okay, the- and, what, and, what are you, and what are you what are you looking for on that spreadsheet? Oh, how many amps are they running at every single site? You know, we'll get told by the seller. We just uh, honestly don't believe them a lot of times. Right. Um, you know, our overground wires, underground wires, any issues with the wiring, right, to the home, uh, any issues with the pedestals, the meter boxes, you know. And then next to all that, because afterwards, we get the electricians to write this up because with the idea of, hey, we're going to need some work to get this fixed too. Sure. So give us an idea of what this is going to cost to fix. Right. Because like you, we want to be able throughout the DD process, we've got to be building that CapEx budget. What's it going to cost for us to get this, you know, stabilized, comfortable, you know, with minimum five to 10 year run on it before we have a lot of other fixing to do. I got a question for you. So I, I had a, I've inspected the electric similar, um, but I had an issue on one where the hundred amp service was working and was fine. And, and, and if I was going to bring in a 200 amp home, then I would have to upgrade to 200. But the one risk, and I ended up getting hit by it was when you go inquire with the city as to the current electrical requirements, the city said, Oh, well now the, let me come out and look at it. And now that I'm here, and we had power lines that were like 10 feet above the houses or less in some instances, they said, you got to put that all underground. It was a huge expense. Now we ended up kind of got lucky that the, um, because of all COVID supply chain, they couldn't get the city, couldn't get the big transformer boxes. They were on back order. So they're like, well, never mind. I guess we can't go underground because we don't have the equipment to help you. So we'll just put in taller poles. And then they put in 45 foot poles instead of 20 foot poles. And they just elevated the electric and, and we shared the expense. It was still, an, it still was a missed price for us and you know missed DD cost because they were all fine and good. And the, and the electrician said they were all fine and good, but then this new city policy changed or really implementation of policy 
because in theory, there's always electrical safety policies. Um, so when you, my, I guess the, my point is, you know, the, even when you're trying to, to be diligent, sometimes things go wrong, but I'm curious for you, do when you have your electrician do that, do you ask them or, or direct them to talk to the city or do you ask or direct them not to, or do you leave it in their hands? We leave it in their hands, but much as you just described, I feel most of the time when we reach out to the various city administration officials, they're looking to find a problem. They're not looking to approve that things are good. And given the age of most of the communities we operate, right? There's usually something, right? right. When your typical community is built in the seventies or, or earlier, you know, you're, you're using 50 year infrastructure, 50 year planning. Right. If you've got, you know, a really, really persnickety uh, building inspector, you know, they're going to find something to dig you with. And so what we're looking at is, you know, visibly, all right, or do you have overhead lines that are close? Cause you know, that's going to be a problem. Right. right. And we've had the same thing. We had to bury an entire community's lines, but fortunately it was only 40 sites or so still relative to the NOI was significant expense. Right. Uh, where we've seen more problems typically has been on the sewer side. Right. Yeah. And so on the sewer side, it's, you know, one, hopefully there's enough clean outs. There are, we, we do pay a crew to just camera every single line they can and then go out there with spray paint. Right. Because by now we've already done the, the sellers deliverables. We've already driven it ourselves. We've already probably gone in any park on homes. We've got to take over. So we're pretty confident that, you know, we're going to be taking this property over. So we want them spray painting wherever they find those cracks, those holes, what have you. So that way, when we take it over that first week, we can get them back out there and start digging up those problem areas. What are your, what's your least favorite type of sewer line? And are, are you indifferent? Like, are you, are you okay with clay lines? Um, or do you only want PVC? Do you buy, would you buy things that are orange bird or other, other piping material? <laughs> well, orange bird, I would stay away from. We have one orange bird. We found out by accident. Mm. We were told it was galvanized when it was cameraed, right? Because it was so old and it was blackened inside. They said, Oh, don't worry. You've got galvanized pipe. It might last a little longer. That was great until about three months later when you had a line collapse. Right. Oh, wow. And it was to the point to where it was just easier to bypass the existing system right? and just drop PVC in with new laterals and new, uh, a couple of mains, um, on the clay tile, the problem, again, it depends. If you're buying a brand new park that was built recently in the nineties or newer, you're not having some of these issues, but for a lot of the ones that are in the seventies, you're, you're kind of stuck with what you've got unless you really want to open up that bag of worms and just, you know, start over with your, your piping. Yeah, well, I feel like most of what we buy, it's already failed 50 times. So it's like 75% PVC and 25% other. Um, and I had one park where the guy the guy told me it was city water sewer. We looked at the lines. It looked like city sewer and it was PVC. All was right with the world. And then we closed on it. And a couple of days later, the one of the residents said, are you going to clean out my septic? So what do you mean septic? She, she said, yeah, every time it rains, um, anytime I go to the, anytime we use a shower or the uh, washing machine, the sink fills up with toilet water. I was like, what? She was apparently, this is a 90 pad park. Four of the homes in the back were on septic and we didn't check every single lot. 
and we had no no reason to think it was septic and we ended up having to just to be rather the last guy instead of emptying the septic he was he thought it'd be it'd be cheaper and easier to we asked the maintenance vet person do you guys have septic he's like yeah the last guy he uh he didn't want to clean it out it was too expensive so he just took a stick of dynamite and threw it down in there and closed the lid and thinking it would what turn pieces of poop into smaller pieces of poop and that would work no it blew up the tank so then the then the, it, all the guts of it didn't it didn't work properly and it was still full so we we couldn't salvage it or pump it we did, so we had to hook it up to the the main line um you know so it was, again poof thousands of dollars we were not expecting to spend but you know we had no had no real choice yep uh, now we we haven't had anything that bad but we've definitely had situations where before we ever operated a lift station, we didn't bake in an additional expense for operating that lift station, mm. right? Whether it's the electric that's pouring through there, whether it's, you know, having a backup pump, whether it's, you know, pumping out that lift station, anything that doesn't, you know, get pumped all the way up. And so just knowing some of this stuff, and unfortunately a lot of it's through bad experience, right? right. And so much like you started the seller deliverables, that checklist keeps getting bigger and bigger, you know, we, we're pretty honest with people. We say, hey, look, we're not expecting everything, but we've noticed if we don't ask you for it, we're not going to get it. Right. Um, and then on to that, I mean, so on the physical side, I'm right with you where it's, you know, water lines are kind of hard, but, you know, maybe you get American leak detection in there. If you know your water usage is really high relative to the number of sites, uh, sewer lines and camera, uh, Electric, we have the electrician check out pretty thoroughly. Roads, we do a visual inspection. Park on homes, we check out. And then the other big expense is off at trees, right? So, you know, the deferred maintenance on your typical community, that seller's not, you know, spending 20 grand, 30 grand to trim a bunch of trees. Right. And then you have an issue where, you know, you have a big storm, something might fall, something might hit something, and it's just not worth the risk. Yeah, trees are trees are one that I've I've learned the hard way of how expensive it is to get rid of trees. Um, <laughs> broke, you know, because I'll look at it and think, okay, that's going to be eight or ten thousand. And if I didn't get a bid beforehand, it's like the bids are twenty five and thirty. Is like, oh crap, I didn't think about that. So now it's like, okay, I got to get bids, and then it's, it's, you got to get an apples and apples bid because if you let the if you let the arborist tell you which ones need to go. You know, you're going to get rid of twice as many and you're going to go broke. But uh, so get more than one arborist. That would be my my tip there. Definitely, definitely. And look for black walnut. If you got black walnut trees, you can harvest them. They're really valuable. Yeah. My dad has a farm and he thought it was a black walnut and he called the arborist. And it's, 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 they have to be at least, I think, 12 or 18 inches wide. Um, and they, they like them in timber areas because they've never had garage sale signs posted on them with, you know, in the neighborhood, people have hammered garage sale signs on them. So they ruin the wood. They use it for fancy furniture and they, they use it for a kind of furniture veneer. So my dad told the guy, I got a hundred foot tall, four foot wide uh, black walnut. And the guy's like, that's a $25,000 tree. And he's like, I'm coming over this afternoon. I want this one. And my dad walks over and points at it and said, what do you think? And the guy said, where's the black walnut? Oh, he was right there. He goes, 
that's not black walnut. There, it's there's like you know there's gold and fool's gold and they look similar. Yeah. There's a type of tree, so I've, I've learned to look at it like yeah, that's not it. Oh, that might be it. Um, but yeah. he dad thought he hit a hit a jackpot with that tree, and he's like, I like the tree, but for that price, I'll let it go. I got a hundred other trees, but uh, oh, yes. just just we had a bunch of black walnut on the farm, but they were they're not mature yet. They're eight inches wide or whatever, so they're not worth any money at this point. You see, good to know. I mean, because we're usually of the mind of. You know, if the tree's hanging or it's it's slanted or what have you, we'll chop it. And then our big thing is, you know, just the community beautification, right? I've gone, we've taken over a lot. I'm sure you have too, where people just leave the roots and they leave the trunk because they don't want to spend the extra 250 bucks to remove yeah. Hey, yeah, I've done that before. I've done that before. And then I'm like, kick myself later. It looks, it looks like you're being cheap. That's the only reason to yeah. leave the stump it. Oh, yeah. Because but a lot of times that's a big expense. Like I got a tree in Kansas City that's, I don't know, three or four feet wide oh. and you know, get rid of the stump was another 1500 bucks or something. I'm like, I ah, don't worry about it. But then now it's like regrowing into an odd <laughs> shape. I'm like, Oh, I should have just got rid of it when I had the guy on site. We, we had that with one we took over where the stump was there. And then another tree grew up like diagonally from the stump. And then you're just stuck doing it again. Yeah. So, you know, we just want to do that on the front end. Uh, Speaking of the front end, really quickly, one thing I did want to touch on for, you know, my background is, is in tax. So one thing I always do, at least when it comes to the seller deliverables, is the is really deep dive at the PLs. I'm sure you do too. But then taking the PLs and comparing them to the PL on uh, the partnership return, right? So your typical deal is owned <laughs> by a partnership. It's a 1065. You go about seven pages in, you've got 8825, and it's the PL. And so that's one place where we, most people, if they're not telling the truth to the IRS, they're not overstating their income. Exactly. Right. And so what we try to do is we take that 8825, you look at that PL, you add back the interest, you add back the depreciation, you add back the amortization. And if you're comfortable with that NOI, then it's okay. Hey, you know, that's a good enough NOI relative to our price where we'll move forward. So how do you, how do you deal with it when, and I've, I've done the same thing. And a lot of times the sellers even tell me on the front end, Hey, just so you know, I don't claim all the income. And it's like, so I, I used to always just say, well, then I'm not going to count it. I'm going to go with the income on your tax return. Well, but if that's 50 cents on the dollar, yeah, I lose the deal. They're not going to, they're not going to cut the price 50 cents on the dollar. So then I have to back into what I think it really is and how much is cash or how much is bad collections or family discounts. I mean, and it, so I, I feel like, I've gotten more and more jaded on the tax return in general. Like I, I put less and less weight into it because it's, it's never seemingly consistent and seemingly accurate. So how, how do you look at it? Cause I mean, otherwise you're going to, you're going to be, you're going to be killing a lot of deals. If you go on the, if you go on just the, the tax return. Oh, definitely. I'm referring to it more as a floor, right? So this is our, like, this is the lowest it should be. Okay. Uh, but like you said, a lot of people say they claim cash. And you'll know this too, right? So as you're getting into the weeds, you can tell which homes are occupied, which ones aren't occupied. Right. Right. And then one of the things we definitely ask for in our deliverables is a delinquency report. Right. right. This is where we've had, you know, deals turn out to be amazing. And other ones where it was, I was doing one recently, it was over hundred sites. Everything checked the boxes, right? It was one of those where, Hey, we can't sign this fast enough. It's gotta be a catch. Okay. Last two things. How much is left on the RPO balances for these four or five? And then what's the delinquency report? 27 out of the 100 were delinquent over two months. 
right? So the one month we'll deal with a couple of people here and there, but what we saw, especially post COVID was there were so many state programs that were giving rental assistance. And we had a lot of tenants who were relying on that. And then when that assistance dried up, then they either chose to stop paying rent or they didn't want to go back to the normal way of things where it's like, okay, you have to work or you have to get social security or somehow you've got to generate income household wise to get your rent paid. And yeah. We've had some similar, I'm, I'm actually somewhat surprised with how strong collections have been post government money. I anticipated a lot more people failing to pay because they had not paid in a long time. And there are certainly people in that camp, but there's, uh, more of, I was pleasantly surprised that more of them were like, okay, I guess I'll start paying again. Cause we had people, we've had some people who were there for three years and never paid a single payment, yeah. and, but they, but they were current. Right. So they, yeah. we didn't evict them, but it was just a matter of time. And then I got a guy right now, we filed eviction on him like four times in Illinois and he keeps finding some government program. And I mean, we're like now the, the, the government program is out. And they, they if you, if you try to apply they don't even accept applications. Well, this last week, he convinced the judge again, he's going to get more assistance. So they gave him another continuance to go get more assistance. And we don't want the guy. He's also suspected of dealing drugs. So we don't want the guy regardless. You know, his money's no good here. And he, the, the judge keeps making us. And especially in certain states and certain municipalities, you see that, right? We own one in Illinois and we will never be buying another one in Illinois. Right. And that's just that's just how it is. We had a 60 site community and through COVID, because it's spread, it spread like wildfire. A couple of people didn't pay rent. There was an eviction moratorium. Um, so we couldn't get them out unless it was health and safety reasons. They tell other people, well, you guys are suckers. Why are you paying rent? Right. Right. And so then, like you said, there's two camps. Most of our properties, you know, collection has been amazing because what's the alternative? Right. If you're operating a working man's park or an average, you know, community, there is no real feasible option at the same level of rent. It just doesn't exist. Yeah. One thing we had a problem with it at first, but we've really turned it around. And, and I, I like Illinois more than most, but um, keep and keeping in mind, I, I left at 18 and everyone back. But um, um, but one thing that has helped us is after we evict somebody. We have, we put it put it in the lease that if you get like if, if Jason gets evicted, Jason can't move in with you. He can't be a guest. He can't be your co tenant or your roommate. And if you let Jason in, we're gonna you are evicted for violating this lease provision. So because we had one family that hopped to five different houses, and then we'd evict this we'd evict the second house and the third and we'd evict, in one community. This was in Missouri. We evicted five people in a row. And it was just the same idiot and couple idiots that kept growing until at one point there's 10 idiots in the same single wide. And, and it was just like, man, it was pulling teeth with that community. And as soon as we got rid of the fit, we kind of watched it. Like, I don't think he has any more friends left. And once yeah. he got rid of, once we got rid of his last friend, like the world changed, you know, like, all right, those guys are gone. And now we can all of a sudden start selling houses because they had junk everywhere. You, you couldn't sell it. The guy's got, six dumpsters full of junk. You can't sell a house next door. Right. So, and then they take their junk and move it over again. And so you could, you could, you could follow the beer cans to the next trailer they were living in. And, and this is one thing that we do, which is an additional expense, but I, you know, I think it's some of the best money we do. If we've got a vacant lot every spring, we'll just bring in a 30 yarder. Right. And oh, yeah. we will, we will pay for the cost of it 
Well, there's so much accumulation and you got to keep in mind so many of these uh, homes, you know, if all you have is a home and a shed and you're, you're collecting stuff, you're going to be bursting at the seams and it's going to start getting outside. And we don't want that. Right. So we do enforce the rules, but at the same time, you know, we kind of give that outlet of, Hey, let's fill up the 30 yarder. And we might go through three or four of them, right. It might be a $2,000 expense, but at the end of the day, the value that we believe we derive from it is far exceeds that $2,000 expense. I'm, yeah, I'm under I'm under contract on a, a park right now, and it's got about forty occupied um, out of a hundred plus, so but kind of low occupancy. But the amount of junk is unbelievable. I have budgeted twenty thirty yard dumpsters, and I told the dumpster guy I didn't do it, but somebody else, the accounting, told them, bring me five. And then we'll bring you five, five more. I want reserve 20, but in case I need to stop or in case I need more, but I'm, I'm, I'm expecting 20 full. And that's the most I've ever used by far, but, but it's like, it's just, just oh. junk, junk everywhere. That's a lot for 40 occupied. Yeah. Well, part of it's the, there's a, there's 150 sites and they switched gas from a natural gas to propane at some point, but all the old gas risers, are sticking out of the ground in all these vacant lots. So you got two feet of pipe everywhere. And then you got um, other, you know, water meter, water meters and things like that. Um, not heat, heat rods that they've pulled out from frozen and they just leave them in the yard. So you've got just, just, just in the community, they've been weed, weed eating around this stuff for 10 years. Like you could pay to throw it away once and you'll save on your mowing bill. Yeah. Oh yeah. Completely. But instead I feel like that's a lot of the way cheaper operators have operated for years where it's, you know, the band-aid method, but it ends up prov- providing to be much more costly in the long run than just doing it the right way. Right. Yeah, exactly. You know, two other things I just want to touch on real quick. I know uh, we are getting reassessed more and more on the property tax side, you know, in most of the States we are in operating in. So that's just something that I think, you know, anyone watching this, just keep an eye on. You know, because if you're banking in your NOI based on the prior guy's property taxes, those might not be yours, even in some of the states in which they're supposedly rolling and it doesn't get triggered by a sale. That's yeah, I've I've had it happen a few times. I've been been fairly successful on the tax appeal. And for our audience, I've got I think it's episodes nine and ten. I specifically get into that topic Um, and. But yeah, I mean, property taxes are a big bite and they can be. So you got to be you got to be real cautious about it. But there, there are some strategies to try to mitigate some of that pain. Um, you know, and one of them that has got other legal legal flaws is to buy the LLC of the seller. But that created that. So I had a whole episode on that, too. But um, the, one that doesn't work if they own it in their personal name. Right. You know, unless you're going to go create an LLC right then, but that could trigger it, too. So, yeah, triggering provisions on sale and, you know, a lot of states um, are not disclosure states. So the assessor doesn't often know. But I've found that you know, in, in general, you typically want to buy communities in highly populated counties. Well, the downside of that is highly populated counties have more professional assessment departments and, and sophistication and staff and money. So they're more likely to catch your sale. If you're in a rural area, you could, you could buy a property. I've had property. I've, I've, I have one property. I bought it. It didn't go up. I sold it. It didn't go up. I bought it back. <laughs> it, it didn't go up. You know, this is in a county in Illinois 
And I've been through reassessment cycles and, you know, and I mean, I went up 3% or whatever the whole, whole region did, but you know, it's, it's, I bought it for, I think twice what I bought it for the first time, you know, yeah. so it's, it's gone up sizably. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's kind of a luck of the draw. It's hard to underwrite that risk um, because you don't really want to call the County in my opinion, and be like, Hey, I'm thinking about buying this trailer park for 3 million. You have it valued at 800,000. Are you going to keep it at 800,000? Are you going to value it at 3 million? Like, no. <laughs> so yeah. sometimes we'll call, sometimes we'll call and we'll um, say, we're considering buying commercial property in this jurisdiction. How do you guys reassess? Do they generally, I've used to do that, but then they did, I never really got the good answers. They'd be like, oh yeah, we always try our best. We do, we, you know, we do the mo- most accurate value possible. You know, we have a whole comprehensive process and they don't come right out and say, we're going to tag your value. But some of them, I had it happen once they just said, we're going to tag your value. And then they did. Um, but then I had to appeal it and I won, but it, it, it still was a huge pain, but, and then, you know, it was like $17,000 tax increase, you know, put that on a six cap, you know, there's no, yeah. that was no fun, you know, 30 days in. Exactly. Exactly. What we've seen is I'm thinking one state in particular where they'll figure out what you sold, you bought it for, and then they'll come under that about 10 to 15% and then reassess at that. And then basically say, okay, well, you know, tell us why it's, why we're wrong. Yeah. There's, I, I used to be the County appraiser in Jackson County, Missouri, here in Kansas city. And I went to state, assessors association and there was one assessor so the rule of missouri is the assessor is supposed to be within 90 percent of value so they, they basically let you be 10 percent low because then you get less appeals less phone calls you need less staffing but this guy wanted to be like 30 percent below because he wanted to get reelected. so if people so what eventually the state audited him and they're like you need to get your values up he goes oh i know mine are really way too low he goes but i'm going to need that in writing and then when people come to his office complain, he goes, the state made me do it. I'm your local assessor. Vote for me. See you at bowling tomorrow night. They made me, they said, you must increase all values 30% across the board. He goes, I my hands were tied. If it had been a different assessor, they'd have probably increased him 40. And that was his, like, he was telling people this, like, yeah, I'm purposely doing this to, to continue to get this cush job. Oh my gosh. I love it. So, I love it. Love the war stories. Yep. Right. All right, taxes. What else you got, Jason? Any other tips or you, tricks? You know, the only other I know you got a bu- I know you got a bunch, but you know, the only other thing I would put on people's radar, which we are seeing in select states, is just uh, local places trying to change the zoning, right? Trying to go through the zoning route, especially if you've got something that's grandfathered in, it's legal non-conforming. Uh, you know, all over the place, what you can build back, what you can't build back. The, the age of the homes you're, you're allowed to bring in, um, whether you're able to bring homes in, right? That's another big fight is, you know, this whole idea of whether it's site-specific of abandoned use versus the whole property. To me, it's mind-blowing. But, you know, if you had a 100-space community and 40 of them are vacant, you should be able to bring in 40 homes on those vacant lots, right? But there are some places that say no. It's... It's, 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 a, it's a struggle, man. We see that all, we do it all the time, zoning probably in a hundred plus cities we've done it in and we've seen it where there's no code and we've seen it where the code is exceptionally onerous. There's, I looked at, I got a call this afternoon on one actually where the city says within 15 days of transfer, all non-conforming components must be brought into conforming status. 
So upgrade all the upgrade all the pedestals, put in sort of concrete, um, fill the lots or or forever lose them. So I mean, it's 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 extremely onerous, and you know there's portions that are arguably valid under the city's police power, but many of them are an overreach. So yeah, I'd say getting the zoning right is is a big deal. And, and, and I still mess it up all the time. And I, and a lot of times they call me after the fact, Hey, can you help? And I'm like, you got to sue the city. Cause they're, you, you know, they're, they're not going to cave. They've told us that you got to sue the city. And like, well, we're only talking about five of my 19 lots. I was like, okay, well, what's your lot rent? You know, 200 bucks. Well, yes. it's probably not worth suing over. I'm sorry to tell you this, but you just lost those five lots. And if you if a home burns down, you lost six and seven. And so if I were you, I wouldn't pay the lawyer. I'd pay the listing broker and I'd try to dump that thing to the greater fool. But that, that we see that all the time. And sometimes you can fight them. We're fighting a city right now via lawsuit on one that they have a, they consider electric pedestals and concrete that is not, that has not been used for six months to be abandoned and in violation of the code is and basically as junk. So if, so you have to, they're trying to make us remove, this is not my part, it's for a client, but trying to make us remove the existing electric and concrete on a hundred plus pad sites that are vacant. And the, you know, the, the goal of this property and this acquisition was fill the vacant pad sites. Yeah. And they're yeah. saying, no, 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 the last guy didn't use them for five years. So not only can you not use them or upgrade them, you have to rip out, the infrastructure, which yeah. is obviously a big expense. That's insane. Yeah. And even nowadays, I mean, look, we're still constantly pouring pads, right? And that cost has gone up significantly. Yeah. Old days, we just needed some gravel and you, you were allowed to put it on that. And then it turned into runners, then it turned into full pads. And yeah, and it depends on that. Depends on the state and depends on new versus used. Um, some states, they're a little lax on the use. So I've actually done it where I can overpay for a used home relative to a new home because a used home like here in Missouri, you can put a used home on the dirt. You don't have to have gravel, you know, Kansas, they want crushed gravel and, you know, you know, Illinois and Missouri, if you have a new home, they want piers or pad. We typically do the piers instead of the pad. Um, but uh, yeah, new homes have the, in some States and I got a lot of clients that are in the South and Southeast and they're like, you know, we don't even have, we don't even know what concrete costs. We didn't even, we never even thought about concrete. You know, you're paying for concrete. Like, yeah, it's like 4,000 a whack. They're like, what? Yeah. You know? Yeah. We've yeah. got a bunch of that, especially, you know, where we've seen on the zoning, just to go back to this with, with, well, I've got one where we've got to do full concrete pads. They said, Oh, well, this is how we treat all of our, our manufactured housing communities. And I'm just standing there. I'm like, no, you have one. It's us. <laughs> right. Yeah. That, yeah, that hurts because they they could really, you're probably lucky that's all they're doing because they can say we're treating all of them fairly. It just happens to be only only one, and it's like crap. And that that could back on tax appeals, that becomes a challenge on tax appeals too. Like, how much did all the other mobile home parks go up? And they're like, there are none. And 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 in some jurisdictions, like in in I own parks in my hometown in Adams Quincy, Illinois, in Adams County, we've had three or four parks in that county, and it's all in the same County, but they have townships. So I did one tax appeal and they're like, well, the County is this big, but in our township, you're the only one. And then in my township, they went up 20% and the other township, they went up five. So I was like, 
God, you could. You know, so they have there is another level of assessment and supervisor of assessments that you can take those appeals to. But th- it's not at the informal, inexpensive level. So you had to, I had to make a formal tax, a formal tax appeal with the state. And then you got to go through that process and you got to hire a local attorney, you know, my eviction attorney stamped the paper. Don't tell anybody that. Um, <laughs> but you got to hire a local attorney, and local appraiser and right out of the gate. You know, there's five grand. You know? Yeah. Yeah. For, for not a guaranteed result either. Right. Sure. You're that's five grand for a shot of getting what you want done. Exactly. And sometimes it's not, you know, if, if you do, it depends on the state, but depends on some states. If you appeal, it's, it's either you break even, like you just lose and they keep your value or you get the successful reduction, but some places they also can go up. Yeah. So you got to be careful, like, okay, you know, I bought it for a million. It went from 400,000 to 600,000. I'd like to get it back to 400,000, but I don't want it to go to a million. So I'll just take my medicine. You yeah. know, and that's a, that's a you know business calculation there as well. Yeah. Now we had one in Wisconsin, bought it a long time ago. Um, they had never reassessed in over a decade, probably two decades. And then they came out, property taxes went from $900 to $9,000. And the problem is the reassessed amount is still, was still less than the actual value of the community, right? right? So then, and you're running into that situation where they, they can appraise it up to fair market value. Do you want to take that risk to what you're saying? And so that was one of those where, you know, we actually got the residents involved and we said, hey, look, we don't like to raise the rent especially if it's unnecessary, but you know, here's what happened here. There's your local assessor. You can talk to them, but everyone's going to have to, you know, do a $30 rent increase because even after that, you know, we're still net negative just on the property taxes. Yeah. That's a tough one, man. Yeah. All right. This is good stuff, Jason. Before we jump, anything else you want to share tips or tricks or, and how can people find you too? I want to make sure you get a chance to. Oh, definitely. Um, I guess final couple of thoughts are, you know, before you're really pricing it out, get a soft financing quote. So you got an idea of what your loan terms are going to be. If you're not doing this often, you want to know what your rate am and term are um, because that's going to get factored into your model. And that's going to depend whether or not you can actually close at the price you said, right? Um, don't, don't be one of the guys that just ties stuff up, retrades it, messes it up for the rest of us at a high price. That's never going to happen. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Um, CapEx budget, call Ferd, get your entities formed, get your, <laughs> your, your leases, your rules and regulations. Uh, and then on closing, make sure you try to get all your titles, right? If you're, you know, we're stuck getting a lot of homes often, and try to get as many titles as possible. Try to get them matched up. Hopefully there's HUD plates. Um, that's another thing where we we definitely run into. I had an amazing escrow company. They actually filed every one of the titles for us at closing. Wow. And so. Yeah, um, titles titles give me gray hair, man. Having, chasing those down is such a pain after closing. Especially on the older homes where you can't identify them, right? You're looking on the hitch. You're looking you know, near the water heater, under the sink, everywhere, but you might not be able to find them. Um, other than that, Ferd, thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure. I listen to you. I love, love the podcast. Hey, thanks for coming on, man. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Take care. All right. Thank you. Bye.
You've been listening to the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Ferd Neiman. Ready to learn more? Go to www.themobilehomelawyer.com for free resources and materials to help you succeed. If you love the podcast, go to Apple Podcasts, give us your review, and subscribe today. Thank you for listening. Neither the Supreme Court of Missouri nor the Missouri Bar reviews nor approves certifying organizations or specialist designations. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements.